Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Shamira Geldman, who's the author of The Civil Rights Lobby, the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights and the Second Reconstruction. This book was published in 2021 by Temple University Press, and it is a fantastic analysis of our sort of understanding of the Leadership Council on Civil Rights, but also putting that into a historical context, as well as a broader discussion about how lobbying and advocacy works in the United States. Um, But I'm going to let Shamira tell us all about that. I'd like to welcome Shamira Gelbman to the um, podcast and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project. Hello, Shamira. Hi, thanks for having me today. Um, So I am an associate professor at Wabash College, which is a small liberal arts college for men in Crawfordsville, Indiana. Um, And I've been teaching here for about 10 years now. Um, And it was about that time that I kind of fell into working on this project. Um, I had been kind of before, Before that, thinking about um, the relationship of civil rights and organized or civil rights organizations and organized labor and the effects that could have on um, inspiring uh, government officials to um, uh, enact civil rights reform. Um, And in doing so, I had come across the name of the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights or just the Leadership Conference. Um, which I knew had kind of formed in the early 1950s, right, Um, and existed for a while and was this site where civil rights and labor organizations were working together along with many other organizations. I didn't know very much beyond that. Um, Other than that, it was some sort of site for collaboration. And uh, I was at the Library of Congress one day waiting for a collaborator on another project um, and decided to kill some time looking uh, at the papers of the the records of the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights and, you know, open one of the first boxes, one of the first folders and um, discovered this letter that a Leadership Conference staff member had written uh, about a month after, a few weeks after the Civil Rights Act of 19. 64 had been passed to a journalism student who had asked for um, insight into the leadership conference's work on behalf of the Civil Rights Act uh, that, again, had had just been enacted a few weeks earlier. And uh, the response is long. It's like a two and a half page single space letter. And it, um, you know, it starts by saying, well, we don't actually have an official history. And so I'm just going to have to basically tell you about who we are. And, you know, um, hopefully you can come to Washington sometime and, and you know, go through our files and, and learn a bit more about the organization. But then it goes on to say that until 1963, the leadership conference had basically no formal organization at all. It existed for about a decade or a little more at that point. Um, but it, it didn't have its own office. It didn't really have a staff. Well, it didn't have a staff, right? Um, it, you know, there was letterhead stationary and, and organizations that belonged. Um, but 
but otherwise just didn't really have a, an organizational existence. Um, and that all changed in the summer of, of 1963, following President Kennedy's announcement that he was going to send an omnibus civil rights bill to Congress. Um, and that was kind of a, an aha moment, right? Kind of a, a sense of, oh, something changed here in the way different social movements or the organizations representing the interests of different social movements were working together in order to pursue civil rights reform. Um, and that just sent me down, a, I guess, a 10-year rabbit hole, um, trying to understand what exactly changed, why, and what effects it had on the work the leadership conference did. Um, I think when I was starting out, I don't, I don't think I appreciated immediately that the work of the leadership conference was lobbying work. Um, now this was not the activity we usually associate with social movements, right? So the leadership conference didn't really sponsor um, demonstrations or marches or um, local protests of any kind. Um, their work was to coordinate lobbying among many organizations that had um, interests and, and kind of boots on the ground in, in Washington, right, in the Beltway, um, trying to pressure Congress to pass federal civil rights um, legislation. And so that was something I came to appreciate as my work on the leadership conference continued. Um, and really, I mean, you see it in the title of the book, The Civil Rights Lobby. It, it really kind of became a centerpiece of, um, of the story I tell about the leadership conference and its role in the achievements of the Second Reconstruction. And so I'm going to ask you to define some terms as we move forward. Um, the first term I'd like you to sort of just like uh, help readers or help listeners to understand before they read your book is what the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, the LCCR, is or consists in. Sure. So the Leadership Conference and back Back when it was founded, and for most of its history, it would have been the LCCR, the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights. It's currently the L, well, they just call themselves the Leadership Conference, the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, um, a name change that happened a little over a decade ago. Um, but it is a coalition of currently over 200 organizations. Um, in the time period, I look at anywhere from about 50 to about 100 organizations um, that, um, as I said earlier, have a shared interest, though not always an identical interest, right, but a shared interest in achieving federal civil rights legislation. Um, uh, these organizations, some of them are your kind of classic civil rights organizations. So the NAACP was one of the founding members and continues as a member of the leadership conference. Um, Others are organizations that focus on something else, but have a strong interest in civil rights nonetheless. Many labor organizations, for example, and the AFL and CIO, which were separate at the time of the leadership conferences founding, were also among the founding members, as were many individual um, labor unions. Um, there are also many religious organizations that were, again, kind of historical founding members. Um, Many Jewish organizations were central to the founding 
of the leadership conference. Um, there were Catholic and Protestant organizations that were members from the beginning, and many more joined during the 1960s. Um, and then just a whole array of civic organizations. Um, so it's it's a very diverse coalition of organizations that, for various reasons, are interested in civil rights reform. And the leadership conference is the coordinating body that uh, seeks to get them working together in unison. And that's that's always a difficult task. As, as you say in the introduction, in one booming voice. Um, and, and so the other term I'm going to ask you to define for listeners, because it's also in the title, is the second reconstruction. Yeah. So, um, so this, the second reconstruction is not my term. It's a, a term used uh, or coined by historians uh, to talk about um, the time period, roughly the 1950s, 1960s, maybe we can include the 1940s in there as well, kind of the post-war era when we saw a resurgence of um, civil rights movement activity and policy reform. Um, most notably the, the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts of 1964 and 65. Um, it's called the Second Reconstruction because the First Reconstruction was the era after the Civil War um, back in the 19th century when, um, again, the, the federal government enacted um, many important reforms uh, uh, to... Um, uh, sorry, <laughs> um, many... Uh, important reforms to um, support the rights and, and humanity, really, of, of newly free, uh, freed enslaved people. Um, the first Reconstruction uh, was not a great, or not a lasting, not a durable success. Um, and pretty soon after, uh, it was just completely overtaken by the rise of Jim Crow, discrimination, disenfranchisement. Um, and so the second reconstruction is a mid 20th century um, period when there were efforts again to, to achieve reform all over again and, and re-enfranchisement as well. And, and so you look at the, the leadership conference which sort of evolves it there there's a founding period and then there's a kind of evolution that is transpiring from the late 1950s into the 1960s um, in terms of the people who are part of the the leadership coalition but also in terms of how the groups try to speak with one voice um, and this is sort of, I guess, the the trickiness of what you're trying to tease out from the historical documents and, and the interactions among all of these groups as lobbyists. Yeah, so I would say there's a little bit of evolution, but in some ways it's really a, a pretty sudden change um, in the summer of 1963. So you have really a, a full decade um, and depending on when you count as kind of the founding of the leadership conference, um, a decade and a few years, perhaps. Um, but you have a, a long period of time and a period of time that's really important in the history of the civil rights movement, right? So the, the mid-1950s, the late 1950s, early 1960s, when the leadership conference exists, has many members. It has, it 
always has about 50 during that time period. Um, it fluctuates up and down by like three in either direction. Um, so it's this big, diverse coalition that doesn't have its own headquarters, doesn't have its own staff, doesn't really have a permanent budget. Um, it really runs on the most volunteer work of um, the, the men who founded it. Um, so uh, uh, Roy Wilkins of the NAACP, Arnold Aronson of the... Um, a kind of a Jewish coalition called the National Communication uh, National Community Relations Advisory Council um, or NECRAC. Um, some of the organized, some people from organized labor. Those two were the the two main men behind it. Um, but the you know they they kind of run it out of their home offices at NECRAC and the NAACP in their spare time to the extent that they had spare time. Um, they would kind of you know get an executive committee together when they saw need to, but this committee didn't have regular meetings and sometimes months would go um, without meeting. Um, They didn't really have routine mechanisms for getting their 50 or so member organizations actually doing the work of the leadership conference, right? Participating in its decision-making about what civil rights bills do we want to see passed, for example, or once they had decisions made about what their priorities are, were what they wanted to see Congress do, they didn't really have ways to mobilize their organization, their member organizations for action. Um, so it was a, it was a coalition, but it was it was kind of really a loose alliance of organizations that at one point had kind of signed on to be members of the leadership conference, and then didn't have to pay dues, didn't really have to participate in anything, didn't have to respond to mail or phone calls if they didn't want to, um, and often just weren't even prompted to, right? And so so it's this coalition that, that exists and has some moments of activity, but never really maximizes the potential of a 50-member coalition, right? That... Um, that changes in the summer of 1963 when um, the leaders of the leadership conference basic they so they're invited to a White House meeting along with other organizational leaders um, and basically announce uh, at that point that they're going to open Washington headquarters and hire a staff to help the Kennedy administration um, push the civil rights bill that would become the Civil Rights Act of 1964 through Congress. Um, and they do that, right? They very quickly um, secure funding from the NAACP and, and the United Auto Workers um, to rent an office space um, in D.C. They hire a couple of staff members and some secretaries, right? Um, and they they set up shop. And they some of the important things they do at that office um are, I think, first and foremost, start holding weekly meetings for the lobbyists of any member organizations that had lobbyists in Washington or had staff in Washington. And, you know, upwards of 30 or 40 people would attend these meetings. Um, You can, you know, the sign-in sheets are all at the Library of Congress. You can go through them and see who these people were. And, um, you know, many of them were there week after week. 
um, they didn't take minutes on these meetings. They, they wanted people to feel free to, you know, speak their mind and, and whatnot. And they didn't want a lot of haggling over what the minutes would say. Um, and so, uh, so we don't have great records of what happened in those meetings, but, you know, I've been able to kind of piece together some stuff. I, I was able to speak to two people who um, participated in many of those meetings. Um, and you really do get a sense of these were opportunities for coordination that just had not existed within the leadership conference previously. Um, there were, especially early on in the year leading up to the Civil Rights Act's passage, there were opportunities for different organizations to weigh in on what the priorities should be as far as strengthening uh, the civil rights bill that had been proposed were concerned. Um, but just opportunities for them to kind of divide up the work, right, and say, okay, who's going to talk to this congressman this week, or, you know, who has a relationship with so-and-so, or who has, you know, uh, prominent grassroots members in, you know, this congressman's district and can kind of mobilize them to bring some pressure on him. So there was some division of labor going on. There was just also just information sharing, right, um, that had not been possible or that there had been no mechanism for earlier. And so, you know, the the core lobbyists, the really central figures, the, the kind of the most insidery of the insider lobbyists for civil rights, um, were able to just kind of update everyone on here's what's going on, here's what you need to tell your home organizations to do, right? These are This is what the letters people write to their congressmen should say. This is where these are the members of this committee that need to be contacted. Um, and this is how, right? Here's what you should say when you contact them. Or we need to get a bunch of people to Washington from these states um, to meet with their senators face to face. Um, you know, you guys in this room are kind of the first people to get the word out um, to help us start mobilizing people for that. Um, so, so that's one really important function that this Washington office served that had not existed before. Um, they also start producing a more or less weekly newsletter. It was called The Memo. Um, and that was another way to just coordinate all of these different organizations, um, state and local branches and their grassroots membership um, for coordinated action. And you would see kind of the talking points to include in letters to congressmen, sometimes calls for delegations from different states to come to Washington for a few days for some face-to-face uh, -face citizen lobbying. Um, all of that was just kind of promulgated and, and hyped in this newsletter that, again, had not existed for the, the first decade or so of the leadership conference's existence. So there is this pivot point in 1963, as you as you note, um, where things become much more sort of institutionalized and structured uh, in, in ways like having an office um, and having staff um, and, and so forth. But you also talk about in the book that I and I found this really interesting is not just the sort of lobbying of members of Congress around the civil rights, but it was also lobbying the parties on the, the sort of getting civil rights into the party platforms was something that the the leadership conference really did a good job of uh, in iterative years. Can you explain a little bit about how that is distinct from some of the lobbying that was going on in Congress? Yeah. And if anything, I would say that's, that's probably the thing the leadership conference was... Mm, most focused on and best suited to in its first, in its earliest years. Um, it's partly why the leadership conference was 
founded. So, um, I mean, it's a long story that people can read in chapter two, but um, kind of what happens is going into the 1952 election year, um, there's a sense that, you know, all these different groups are kind of interested in civil rights and, and here's an opportunity to kind of bring them all together for a conference and try to um, come up with some strategy for getting the parties to make civil rights a priority in their 1952 platforms. And so they, they do that. There's a little drama around the organizing of this conference, but they do pull one together. It's held in February 1952. And for a couple of days, they just gather uh, seven or 800 people from different organizations together um, to um, basically just kind of energize all these organizations or 52 co-sponsoring organizations and um, make some decisions about what uh, what the 1952 priorities should be. And what they produce is a, a brief, like I think it's an eight-point um civil rights plank that they then kind of presented to the Democratic and Republican parties at their conventions that summer. Um, they had a little success maybe in 1952 in, in influencing the party platforms, um, but it, it gives them this momentum to continue as a permanent coalition. Um, they do something similar in 1956, again, with you know varying degrees of success. And then in 1960, they make an even bigger push um, in some ways, foreshadowing some of the some of the things they did in 1960 in the summer of 1963, but on a less sustained basis. Um, but they make a big push in in spring and summer of 1960 to <laughs> influence the party platforms that year. Um, and there, they actually are pretty successful in. Um, getting both parties to take pretty strong stances on civil rights, which then subsequently, um, including in 1963-64, kind of serve them, serve the lobbyists as well as talking points and kind of holding the parties accountable, right? So when there are, you know, efforts to kind of leave things out of civil rights legislation or to, you know, by the Kennedy administration before June 1963 to be really non-committal about any specific civil rights proposals. Um, well, the, the party platforms from 1960 give civil rights lobbyists some, um, you know, some leverage to say, well, you, you say you're committed to this stuff, right? Why aren't you actually um, acting on your commitments? Um, it's different in that, I mean, they were lobbying parties rather than legislators. Um, so, and, you know, this is kind of a once in every four year activity, right? Um, and so they could kind of gear up in say April, May and say, okay, here's what we think should be in the platform planks. And then in, you know, June, July, August, bring it to the parties, right? Um, whereas legislative lobbying is, it's more year round to some extent. Um, it's, it's not every four years, right? It's a bit more of a constant activity. And so I think while they could get some energy up every four years and, and get some mobilizing happening without much organizational infrastructure, um, I think it was much harder for them to really stay ahead of the game with Congress on a more routine basis um, during that time. And and sort of in that 
in sort of understanding that one of the the points that you make that you know I hadn't really thought about until I was reading through your research is that there are these you know members of Congress and and people who are supporting them who are standing athwart all of the civil rights attempts. And so there's this, you know, sort of white supremacy that is, that is lobbying the other, the other side or lobbying from the other side. And that the, the leadership conference sort of comes in and has to like face off. I mean, I think that's the terminology that you use and others that you quote also use that they're facing off, that they're standing up to this, this sort of strong voice that is trying to defeat um, all of all of these attempts at civil rights reforms. Um, can you talk about how you saw what the what the co- what the conference was doing um, in that context? Because I just found that discussion, sort of historical discussion, really fascinating. Yeah. So most of their opposition was actually in Congress, right? right? So it was members of Congress from Southern states, for the most part, who. Um, for years had just been making every effort to obstruct progress on civil rights legislation. Um, And so the, the leadership conference was confronting that. And so a lot of, a lot of what, I mean, to some extent what they were doing was kind of developing wish lists, right? What are, what are the, what are the pieces of legislation or what are the provisions we want to see in civil rights legislation? But, much of their work was legislative strategy, right? And coordinating with pro-civil rights members of Congress um, to confront obstructionists, right? Segregationists in Congress who often had a good deal of institutional power um, to keep civil rights legislation from progressing, Um, which I think really speaks to the, the importance of lobbying here, right? Of having people whose job was to understand how Congress works and um, whose job was to have relationships with friendly members of Congress um, who could help propel civil rights legislation forward once kind of once the inspiration from other social movement activity that was taking place outside of the halls of Congress had kind of inspired presidents and and um, legislators to take action. Yeah, I, I just, I was really, I was really, um, I guess, you know, I hadn't thought about it that way, obviously, because civil rights movement, it's all like people in the streets protesting. And, and that's why this is so, it's such a fascinating sort of dip into another dimension of the civil rights um, sort of process. Um, I wanted to ask you also about um, the way that the groups coordinated after success, <laughs> which also goes to some interesting dynamics around social movement um, sort of structures and and problems. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so I tackle this a bit in, well, I tackle it a lot in chapter five, um, which is the last kind of historical chapter of the book. And, and there I look at kind of the period going from basically right after the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is passed um, to the end of 1965. And along the way, I, I sort of uh, gloss over the Voting Rights Act um, 
which I don't know, maybe that's something I'll make up for in the future. Uh, but I, what I'm really trying to do in that chapter is, is understand how the leadership conference, which had retooled itself in important ways to get the Civil Rights Act passed, how it then kind of came out of that ultimately fairly successful campaign um, and tried to continue its work when the political climate was changing, um, right? So kind of various policy windows of opportunity were starting to close when the civil rights movement itself was changing and starting to, um, I mean, it had always been kind of factionalized, but but to factionalize in, in new ways, right? There are emerging tensions between and among the various um, leading civil rights organizations and the emergence of, of new groups that, um, in some cases had wholly different outlooks. Um, and in a context where many groups were looking to the success of legislation like the Civil Rights Act and, and eventually the Voting Rights Act and wondering what they could learn from that and how they could potentially capitalize on the leadership conferences um success to pursue their own goals, right? And so, so there are kind of both internal um, tensions and decisions that the leadership conference has to make, and then it, it also has to kind of figure out how to navigate a different world, right? And I think we tend to lump like 1964-65 together, um, but things really do change after the, the Civil Rights Act is passed. Um, a, a lot of kind of political energy and support of civil rights reform dissipates. There's kind of a sense of, well, you have the Civil Rights Act. Let's see how that goes before we do anything else. Um, or we have other things we want to work on, right? And we pass that bill and, you know, we're going to work on other issues now. And so, you know, how, how do you take this operation you built for that purpose and use successfully and, and kind of adapt it uh, to a world that's increasingly hostile, to civil rights. And, you know, it's, it's the same Congress that on the one hand passes the Voting Rights Act in the summer of 1965. And then kind of by the end of that year is, is making moves to deprioritize funding for civil rights enforcement, right? And, and the leadership conference is kind of playing defense, trying to, trying to figure out, well, how do, how do we stop that from happening? And how do we retool ourselves to um, ensure enforcement of laws that two years ago, we probably didn't even see being passed, right? Um, they were fighting for legislation and all of a sudden they have to kind of retool themselves to work with federal agencies on enforcement issues. Um, so it's a, it's a time of, of adjustment um, in many ways. And, and they, you know, by the time we get into early 1967, uh, they make yet further changes to the leadership conference, including, including some requirements that organizations start paying dues membership dues um, so that they have a, a budget they can keep sustaining a Washington office with. Um, they kind of formalize a lot of the organizational structure, the organization chart of the leadership conference in ways that even in 1963, 64, they had not done. Um, and, and I wanted to ask a follow up to that because this is, you know, we sort of see this periodically when social movements, you know, sort of, are generated uh, through, you know, changes in culture and Overton windows and so on. Um, and, and they achieve success. 
a lot of times when we look at that in terms of the lobbying structure, that 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 leads to sort of a implosion or not even I don't want to say disintegration, but disconnection, um, because the goal was achieved. And and so, you know, it's a happy ending. Um, or it's like, you know, the romantic comedies, which is usually a marriage between straight people and, but you never see what happens afterwards. Um, and, and so, you know, what does success sometimes look like in terms of our understanding of social movement advocacy? And is there a lesson or lessons that can, can, can we take from the leadership conference in terms of what happened next? Yeah, that's a, it's a big question. Um, you can tackle whichever part of it you'd like. Yeah, I think one thing, you know, one thing that really hit home, and maybe it's a very basic point, but I think one is, is that shift that I mentioned before from seeking legislation to seeking enforcement of legislation. And I think we tend to think of social movement success as they achieve the legislation, right? They achieve the policy change and then they were successful, right? So the civil rights movement, there were all these protest campaigns and then civil rights act is passed. The voting rights act is passed. Um, But so much hinges on what happens after enactment, right? After the laws are passed, once they're on the books, you know, the, I mean, I would say enforcement has been uneven and certainly, you know, we've seen in recent years kind of rollbacks of um, voting rights protections, especially. Um, and so I think, again, it's maybe a, a basic lesson, but that the work is not done after the, the things we tend to put up on a pedestal as well. The movement was successful. They got the law they wanted or they got a better law than they thought they were able, would have been able to achieve just a a year or two earlier. Um, But I mean, the struggle has like, it's, what are we close to 60 years later? And right. And the the struggles over these same issues um, continue and the leadership conference has been working on them ever since. Right. So it's not like they, they got their law and they just stopped. Right. It's they, they got the civil rights act and they went right back to work um, figuring out a what further strengthening laws and what further laws are needed, right? But then also, how do we make sure that the law that was passed is adequately enforced? And and so in terms of your own research, you kind of, you know, you kind of end at that point um, at the sort of late 1960s. And, and you do talk in the conclusion about thinking about this in, in this sort of um, American political development context also, um, and why it's sort of important to think about this historically contextualized. Can you just explain a tiny bit about that? Yeah. So I think putting it or trying to think of it from an American political development lens, I, I think the, the direction I try to push it in is, is in thinking about how do we, how do we get major periods of reform, right? Well, American political development tends to focus a lot on the institutional forces and the institutional actors who um, enact and implement reforms. Um, And to the extent that social movements are part of the story, they tend to be these kind of outside the halls of government or outside the beltway 
actors who kind of inspire reform or, you know, inspire or sometimes incentivize um, powerful institutional actors to act. And then they kind of get out of the way and let presidents and Congress and whoever else do their thing. Um, I think my focus on lobbying in this story uh, says that actually social movement actors are there throughout and can play a really important role throughout uh, reform processes. So, you know, we, we often tell the story of the Civil Rights Act as, well, there was the Birmingham campaign in the spring of 1963, um, and then there was a march on Washington in summer of 1963, and then Kennedy was assassinated, and then six or seven or eight months later, we get the Civil Rights Act, right? There's... Um, and we get it because of maneuvering by President Johnson and some important members of Congress. Um, what I, I don't think we often see is kind of the organizational representatives who were kind of embedded in these institutions, who had relationships with the White House, who had relationships with members of Congress or built relationships with members of Congress um, in order to keep the momentum going, in order to strengthen the Civil Rights Act um, in very specific ways. Um, so, it, you know, in, in the book, I, I kind of try to emphasize how um, a longstanding leadership conference priority had been uh, fair employment practices legislation. And that was not really part of the original Kennedy proposal for the Civil Rights Act. Um, and in chapter four of the book, I try to show how uh, leadership conference affiliated lobbyists helped to make it part of it. I don't, you know, I don't know that they deserve all the credit. There were certainly uh, some important members of Congress who, who, contributed to that as well. Um, but the fact that this was a, a priority that lobbyists kind of took the initiative to really push um, the House Judiciary Committee to put into the bill and, and really worked throughout the year to keep from getting kicked out, left out of the bill again, um, I think that probably made a difference to the final product. They didn't get everything they wanted, right? It's, it's not their ideal um, fair employment practices uh, provision, um, but they there might not have been one at all if not for the efforts they had made um, in the summer and, and fall of, of 1963. Um, and so I, I think I think the contribution to American political development is is to really try to push scholars to think about how social movements play a role in policy change and in, in major policy developments even once institutional actors have started to take action. And so I guess one of the questions I want to ask you and putting it quite boldly. Um, so according to your research, lobby, lobbyists shouldn't be a dirty word. Yeah, um, right. Uh, maybe some, some lobbyists should perhaps, um, and some should not. But I think lobbying generally should, should not be a dirty word, right? Um, I think, I think that my work on this project and, and in writing the book uh, really brought out in me a, a pretty strong appreciation for the work 
um, lobbyists do, maybe especially public interest lobbyists do, um, uh, to try to translate social movement goals into policy, right? Because um, that that translation is not going to happen on its own. There may be there may be legislators or policymakers who are who are going to do some of the work. Um, but lobbyists play a really important role in doing a lot of that work as well. Um, and so, yeah, I think we, we think of lobbying as, as a bad word, a dirty activity. Um, but I think this book shows that lobbyists work for all sorts of causes. Um, some of them causes we like, some of them causes we don't. Um, and they do really important work in, for the causes we like, right, in, in achieving the goals of those causes. And, and, and they're often not seen in a lot of ways. I mean, I think that was one of the things I learned from your work was how, how they're not, they're not the ones we focus on. They're not part of the historic and heroic narrative that we often sort of are associating with some of these outcomes. Right. So I think we, we've heard of many of the organizations, these lobbyists were affiliated with, right. We know that the NAACP and, and CORE and SNCC and, and the, AFL-CIO. When you start looking at who who are the men and women doing the work for these organizations, the lobbying work for these organizations, they are, yeah, they're not household names, right? So, you know, we all know Martin Luther King of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, but he had, he had someone lobbying on his behalf as well. Um, someone whose name is not a household name, even if the organization is, and even if the head of that organization was. Yeah. Um, and, and I know that you're continuing to work on some of aspects of this research. So what is it that you're working on now? Yeah. So I'm, I've kind of two spinoff projects that I'm working on. Um, the, the one I think you're thinking of is, uh, I think of it as my pandemic project a little bit. Um, so I mentioned earlier that, uh, the library of Congress has all these sign in sheets from the leadership conferences meetings and, um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time looking at those sign-in sheets uh, to try to understand the, the sorts of people who were at these meetings, or really just how many were there, what organizations were represented. Um, but in doing so, I started kind of just Googling a lot of the, the people, and um, they're, they're very interesting, right? They, so, you know, I basically came up with a list of about 140 people who were at least at at least two of these meetings, so some of them were at many more. And um, just trying to figure out who they were, right? How old were they in 1963? What career path brought them? What experiences brought them to the leadership conferences, meeting rooms? Um, and so, you know, it, it was research I could do without going to archives, right? During the pandemic, I could just sit there um, Googling and, and going down all sorts of interesting rabbit holes. And um some of what I've learned in the process has been really interesting. Um, probably first and foremost is that many of the people who were involved in lobbying for the Civil Rights Act of 1964 had been Washington Beltway insiders for many years, um, some in the same position they held in 1963, others in more of a, and here's a, another dirty word that I don't know, maybe should or shouldn't be in sort of a revolving door, right, between um, uh, some legislative work, but especially uh, government, federal agency work and various lobbying 
or advocacy groups and lobbying organizations. Um, and so in, in kind of pulling together what I found through all these kind of personal uh, career biographies, um, what I'm finding is, is just interesting connections between the work of civil rights lobbying in the 1950s and especially 60s and um, earlier work in um, the World War II era Fair Employment Practices Commission and in other uh, New Deal and wartime post-war agencies. And uh, so I think one, one spinoff project I'm working on is to really try to understand the connection and understand how those early career experiences um, in the FEPC and in the wartime in, um, agencies shaped uh, lobbyists' subsequent work on behalf of civil rights legislation. Um, and then the second spinoff project that's because of the difficulty of getting to archives during COVID um, is taking off a little bit more slowly is I've become really interested in the women who were part of the what I call the civil rights lobby. Um, there were a, a pretty good number of them. Um, some of them were very experienced in in the very well experienced in the 1960s. Others were brand new to Washington at that time and then went on into um, in some cases, into work for uh, feminist organizations that would emerge later. Um, and so I really want to start kind of delving into um, their role in lobbying uh, for civil rights and how that shaped their subsequent work in other social movements. And I look forward to one or both of these being books that I can talk to you about in another year or two um, on the New Books Network. I hope you'll join me again (laughs) when they come out. Um, I'd like to thank Shamira Geldman for joining me today to talk about the Civil Rights Lobby, the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights and the Second Reconstruction. This is available from Temple University Press, and I believe it's on their website. Um, And of course, you can buy it at likely most independent online booksellers. Um, Thank you so much for joining me today, Shamira. Yeah, thank you for having me. My pleasure.